Well, this morning we are now in the third week of a series that we're calling Apocalypse. And uh, we're going to be spending the rest of the year in this series. Uh, We're in the third week. uh, We have one more week of Ezekiel after this. Uh, Then we're going to spend three weeks in the book of Daniel. uh, And then we're going to spend four weeks in the book of Revelation in the month of December. So uh, we are really excited about this. And and I would bet that now that those of you that have... um, been here three weeks and have, have kind of gone through this series so far, I would bet that this series is probably uh, very different from what you maybe expected uh, when you heard uh, the series about these prophetic books, these apocalyptic books. And uh, you, were, you were probably expecting that, that uh, I would break out some charts and some timelines and I would give you some details of, of how the world was, was going to end and, and I would uh, maybe point to the Middle East and all the happenings that are going on there and I would say this fits into here and, and uh, begin to kind of put the, the pieces of the puzzle together for you. Uh, and uh, you've probably experienced by now that in the third week that we're, that we're not going to be doing that. Uh, we're not going to be looking at charts and timelines and, and trying to put puzzle pieces together uh, because I feel like that when it comes to Jesus's return, uh, the Bible is, is overwhelmingly clear on one thing, and that is uh, we don't know when Jesus is going to come back, and so live ready. Uh, when Jesus talks about it and when people press uh, Jesus on when he's going to come back, and that's the message that he shares, and I, I believe that that's the, uh, the one thing that, that we should really take away. So if you want to know uh, how the whole thing is going to shake down and, and how we ought to, to, to be prepared, uh, here's my message to you. Uh, live ready for Jesus' return. It could be uh, a thousand and years from now, uh, it could be any moment, and I believe that that's what Scripture teaches us. And so, so, so during this series, we're not looking at timelines or charts, uh, but rather we're looking at apocalyptic books because apocalyptic books and, and prophetic books are, are, are seeking to do something. Uh, the Greek word for apocalypse uh, is, the, is the word apocalypsis, and, and, and this word literally means revealing or to reveal. And so what we, when we come to these apocalyptic books and when we come to these prophetic books uh, and, and we understand that they're, they're trying to do something, they're trying to reveal something or someone to us, we have to begin to, to discern what are they trying to reveal to us. And, and many would argue that they're revealing to us exactly how everything is going to play out and, and uh, that, that we can fit all these sort of things into puzzle pieces and timelines and all of that. And, and yet the, the, the argument that I want to make is that when we come to these books... What they're, what they're trying to reveal to us is, is the great majesty, love, grace, and mercy of God and Jesus Christ. So that's apocalyptic, literally means to reveal. And, and, and when we come to prophecy, some people understand this word prophecy as uh, only being future telling. That is to say that that a, a prophet is one who tells the future or knows the future. And, and the prophecy is something that is only future telling. And what I want to say to you, and what I hope that we understand as we walk through this series, is that prophecy is a timely word from God for the people of God. In other words, prophecy doesn't exist in a vacuum. That these prophets 2,000 years ago were not just telling the future of what's going to happen now. And to the original audience, they all just kind of got a confused look on their face and said, well, what difference does this make? Uh, in other words, it's a t- prophecy is a timely word 
for the people of God, from God. It's a timely word, meaning that for the original audience, it had deep and profound meaning. And the beauty of the prophecy of God is that we can, where it once had this this profound meaning for those who originally heard it, we go through 2,000, 2,500 years, and it has profound and deep meaning for us as well. And so what I want us to understand is that are there future elements to prophecy. Absolutely. Old Testament prophets were speaking about the coming of the Messiah. But it's not just future telling. It's a timely word so that we have a hope for the future. It's not so that we have all the details of the future. It's so that we have a hope for the future. And so in many ways, I consider myself to be a prophet because each and every week I come before you, hopefully with a timely word from God for you, the people of God. So if you've ever come to, if you've ever heard a message uh, at church, whether it's in this church or another church, and, and you said, you know what? That message was for me. That's exactly what I need to hear today. I came to church. I needed encouragement. I got encouragement. Man, this is exactly what I needed to hear. I don't know if the Lord had anything for anybody else, but that was for me. That's a timely word from God for the people of God. Spoken through God's mouthpiece. Uh, And I have uh, the privilege, but I also have the responsibility of being part of God's mouthpiece to all of you. And so I I want us to try to unveil a little bit of the mystery behind prophecy, a little bit of the the scary factor behind prophecy in these prophetic books, because we have to to begin to understand what is the timely word for that first, those original hearers, and then how do we understand it in our own context and that it might give us hope for the future. Now, the other other thing that I want to say about this as as a setup Um, and and just so that we're understanding the direction of this series, is that whenever we hear, um, whenever we experience or read in Scripture someone that is given a prophetic word, the hearers of a prophecy, over and over and over again, their response to that prophetic word is hope and worship. In other words, we don't read anywhere in Scripture where where someone hears a prophecy. They're given this great prophetic word. We we don't see anywhere in Scripture that upon hearing this prophetic word, they they ran to the current events calendar, they ran to the newspaper, and began putting together charts and timelines and puzzle pieces so that they could begin to understand. The response to a prophetic word from God always induces hope and always stirs in us a heart of worship. And so, man, as we go through this series, my goal at the end of every single sermon is that your heart would be filled with a greater love for God whom we might see a little bit clearer and that our response might be worship. Are you with me? Now, let me encourage you, um, if you have any questions about this that you would like to ask me or or, or discuss in private, I would love to, to do that with you. Uh, and, and just kind of wrestle through some of these things uh, with you. So let me just make that available to you. Okay, so here's where we've been so far. You guys ready? Because Ezekiel's been weird, hasn't it? Can I get an amen for how weird Ezekiel is? I can just get chuckles, but no amens. That's all right. I'll take a chuckle. 
so Ezekiel is just bizarre. And we've been looking at some really bizarre passages in Ezekiel. And uh, we're, that's not going to stop today. We're going to look at another bizarre passage. But here's where we've been so far. In, Eze- in, in, the, cha- in, in the very first week of this series, we looked at Ezekiel chapter 1, which is Ezekiel's heavenly vision. And what we learned from that vision is, is we were taught something about the nature of the presence of God. That is that the presence of God is not limited to a particular place. But, but, we, but we also learned, perhaps even greater than that, is, is that this heavenly vision, God comes from the north. And, and that's really symbolic for, uh, because, that's really symbolic because in scripture, enemies are known as coming from the north. And yet in Ezekiel chapter 1, in his heavenly vision, it's God himself that's coming from the north. And so right away we learn that this is a book of judgment. Out of all of its chapters, three-fourths of the chapters are spent pronouncing judgment on Israel for their disobedience. And so it's, it's not one of those books that, that if you want like a, this, just this really warm, kind of fuzzy, personal devotional time where you just want Jesus to wrap you in his arms of love, don't read Ezekiel. Okay, uh, So, it, I mean, it's a book of judgment. But what we learned by looking at this heavenly vision is that judgment is not just that, that, that God is sort of a mean guy in the sky waiting for you to do something wrong so that he can bring his judgment on you. But rather the purpose and the heart of judgment is always that God would bring us to repentance. The, the heart of judgment is that God is, sees the brokenness in the world and God is sorting those things out. Some of you need to hear the good news today that God is not a mean guy in the sky looking to get, to get you and catch you at whatever you do wrong, but God is a loving God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and his judgment is God trying to sort out the brokenness in the world and try to bring everything back to right. That's his judgment. And so we see God coming from the north in judgment But the heart of that, we learn later on in the book, is always that God would call us and invite us into relationship with him. That he would call us into his loving grace and mercy so that he might sort out the brokenness in our world. And in fact, we see this because as as Ezekiel is given a vision of the presence of God in that vision filled with fire and, and, and flames and metal and all of these things, we see a rainbow that reminds us of God's promise to Noah that he will not destroy the earth again and he will not get rid of all the inhabitants of the world again. And so the message that we learned first in the first week is that God's presence in your life is without limit, that God's judgment is sorting out, and that God has not forgotten you and he has not forgotten creation. It is not God's will to abandon this place and it is not God's will to abandon you. You may have abandoned him, but he has not abandoned you. And we're going to learn that today. Again, in a different form, in a different format. Week two, uh, last week, we, we, uh, we learned the this is that principle. This is that principle. Ezekiel is called to do some really weird things uh, in, in Ezekiel chapter 4. And, and so, but those things ultimately point to the greater reality. So when we look at Ezekiel doing all these, these weird things, we say this is actually about that over, over here. Or, or that is actually about this over here. And so um, what we learned is, is this greater reality that first we are disobedient and we're deserving of punishment. That when we look at the disobedience of Israel and the disobedience of Jerusalem upon which God is pronouncing judgment, we might say to them, how could you? 
How could you be so disobedient? How could you do that? And, and what we realize when we look honestly at our own lives is that we're prone to the same disobedience against God. We're, we're prone to those same things. And so in, in reality, we ourselves, because of our sinfulness, because of our brokenness, because of our disobedience against God, we are deserving of, of punishment. We are deserving of against the language in Ezekiel 4 is a siege coming against us. But what we realize is that that's, that's the bad news. The bad news is we're deserving of it. We're sinful. We're broken. We're disobedient. But the good news is that Christ has stood between the city and the siege. He stood between us and our deserving punishment as our suffering servant. And we, we basically just presented the gospel of the love of Christ who took on our sin that we may have life. It's an absolutely beautiful picture that we're given in Ezekiel chapter 4 of this is actually pointing us to the greater reality of that. That this, these weird things that Ezekiel was called to do are actually foreshadowing and bringing us and pointing us to the greater reality of the love of Jesus on the cross. So today, here's what I want to do. I want to look at a passage of Ezekiel that for years has been, too, been considered too graphic for public reading. Too graphic for public reading. For years and years, the church would not read this passage in, in its liturgical or public setting because of the graphic nature of it. But at this church, we have this thing that we call the code. And, and, and the code is sort of seven statements that describe the kind of church that we're going to be. One of our codes is, is that we're going to we're going to honor people. We're going to be a culture of honor. And that is to say that, that whether we're serving with someone or, or under someone's leadership or someone is under our leadership, there's going to be honor flowing in every direction of this church. Uh, that we seek to always uh, honor everyone around us. That's one of our codes. One of our codes, though, is, is no mining. No mining. Uh, you know when you have trail mix... And it's like peanuts and M&M's and raisins. And you're like, I'm all on board with peanuts and M&M's, but I am not on board with raisins. And so you mine out the raisins. Come on, somebody. That's me. That's me. I am a miner big time when it comes to trail mix. Well, well, well we've decided that, that some people do that with the Word of God. The Word of God gives us peanuts, the nuts and bolts, the necessary stuff. It gives us M&M's, the stuff that you just read it and you're like, oh, that's good. And it's kind of like warm, fuzzy, devotional stuff. That's the M&M's of the Bible. And then, some, then the Bible gives us raisins, Ezekiel 16. And you're just like, what am I supposed to do with that, right? And, and so this morning we're, we're going to look at one of the raisins of the Bible. And, and we're not going to mine it out. We're going we're, we're to realize it's part of the whole counsel of God. And so we're going to look at it. And, and we're going to study it, and we're going to see what God has to say to us through it. So that's, that's why we're doing it, is, is because um, I, we just have this conviction at this church that we're going to teach even the tough parts of the Bible, even, even the, the raisins of the Bible. Okay, so let me give you a content warning. Uh, this is PG-13, uh, bordering on rated R. Uh, it's, it's graphic, uh, but it, is, it reveals incredible Incredible truth to us, okay? Let me, let me set this up a little bit because 
you guys are not even prepared for what you're about to hear. So let me, so let me set it up a little bit. What we have in Ezekiel 16, you can turn there, by the way. Uh, Ezekiel 16 is a metaphor. Uh, it's a metaphor where Ezekiel speaks of Israel as a baby who was forgotten as a child, and yet God, as a passerby, God passed by this baby, uh, then rescues the baby and makes the baby his own. Uh, and then the, the baby is then disloyal to its rescuer. So, so what we have here is a metaphor. I want you to understand that this is, uh, this is a metaphor for the disobedience and, and, and the unfaithfulness of Israel. So I've entitled this message, Unfaithful. And uh, let's, let's read it. I want to read This is a long chapter, uh, but I want to read the first 29 verses. Ezekiel chapter 16, uh, 1 through 29. Um, here it is. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. And on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, and nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in clothes. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you, but rather you were thrown out into the open field. For on the day you were born, you were despised. And then I passed by, and I saw you kicking about in your own blood. And as you lay there in your blood... I said to you, live. And I made you grow like a plant of the field. And you grew and you developed and entered puberty. Your breasts had formed and your hair had grown. Yet you were stark naked. Later I passed by and I looked on you and I saw that you were old enough for love. And so I spread the corner of my garment over you and I covered your nakedness. And I gave you my solemn oath and I entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. And I bathed you with water, and I washed the blood from you, and I put ointments on you, and I clothed you with an embroidered dress, and I put sandals of fine leather on you. I dressed you in fine linen, and I covered you with costly garments. And then I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. I put a ring in your nose and earrings on your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. And so you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth and your food was honey olive oil and the finest flowers you became very beautiful and you rose to be a queen and your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor that i had given you made your beauty perfect declares the sovereign lord but you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute And you lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. And you took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried out your prostitution, and you went to him, and he possessed your beauty. He also took the fine jewelry that I gave you, the jewelry made of gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols, and then you engaged in prostitution with them, and you took your embroidered clothes to put on them, and you offered my oil and incense before them, and also the food that I provided for you, the, the flour, the honey, and the, and the olive oil that I gave you to eat, you offered as a fragrant incense before them. And that is what happened, declares the sovereign Lord. 
And you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and you sacrificed them to idols. And in all of your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and kicking in your own blood. Woe, woe to you, declares the sovereign Lord. In addition to all your other wickedness, you built a mound for yourself and you made a lofty shrine in every public square. And at every street corner, you built your lofty shrines and you degraded your beauty, spreading your legs with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed by. And you engaged in prostitution with the Egyptians, your neighbors with the large genitals, and aroused your anger with, by my anger by increasing your promiscuity. And I stretched out my hand against you and reduced your territory I gave you over to the greed of your enemies and the daughters of the Philistines who were shocked by your lewd conduct. And I, I, you engaged with prostitution with the Assyrians too because you were insatiable. And even after that, you still were not satisfied. And then you increased your promiscuity to include Babylonia, the land of the merchants. But even with this, but even with this, you were not satisfied. I'll say what I said last week. And you thought the Bible was boring. So here we are. Ezekiel 16. The raisin of the trail mix. I want to see us, I want us to see the, the first section of this chapter. Not as a metaphor for the disobedient Israel. But I want us to see the first part as a metaphor for who you are in Christ. For who you are in Christ. You know, you may disagree with what I'm about to say. You may not want to admit it. But the truth is, is that you and I are lost without God. You and I are lost without God. Uh, like I said, you may not want to admit that. Uh, you, you, may, you may disagree with me completely. I don't know, I don't know where you're at this morning or, or, or what sort of your theology or your belief about God says, but, but, but the truth of, of the Scripture says that, that you and I, without God, are, are utterly lost and, and that we are estranged from our Creator. And, and that could we say that, that you and I are, are a baby kicking in our own blood in need of rescue? Now, I know that that doesn't sound like very good news, but, but if we're going to realize the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, who is our rescuer, we have to come into the, to contact. We have to realize the fact that we are utterly lost without him, that, that God is the creator of the world. He's created all that we see, all the majestic beauty of the area that surrounds us, and, and all that we see in creation. And you and I are part of that creation, the crown of God's creation, the image bearers of our creator. And yet, when we walk in disobedience to him, when we don't recognize that he's our creator, when we don't enter into relationship with him, for that is the very reason that he created, is to enter into relationship with his creation. When we're disobedient, we are lost without him. We, you, you might be a great person. You might be a moral person. You might do all the right things, but I want to tell you today with all the compassion in my heart that the truth of the scripture is that you and I are lost without God, estranged from our creator, 
and not altogether unlike a baby who's been abandoned and is now kicking in their own blood. And yet, despite our brokenness, and despite our great need, and despite the ugliness of this picture of a baby kicking in their own blood, there our Creator has passed by us and decided to bring upon us the great rescue. Where you and I are broken and lost without God, God has said, I will not forget you. Remember the image from Ezekiel 1. Despite the fact that you're so broken, I will not forget you. And in fact, I have not forgotten you. And so Jesus comes to us. He he passes by us. And then he says in this passage, he says to this, this baby kicking in its own blood, abandoned by its parents, not given any of the, the care and compassion that a, that a newborn baby typically would in this culture. Not given any of that. And yet, God proclaims over this life, live. Live. God looks upon this baby that is broken and in need of rescue with a heart of compassion and proclaims over their life, live. Let me tell you that God does not only desire life for you, but he is the source of that life. That God in Christ has proclaimed over your life, live, have abundant life. Have you ever come across a challenge or maybe you're going through one right now, a difficulty that would lead you to say the words, I would rather be dead than go through this. I would rather die than experience that again. If that's you today, then God in Christ is pronouncing and declaring over your life, live. There is life in your creator. There is life in the one who loves you. There is life in the one who has rescued you. Come on, I'm yelling and preaching way better then you guys are responding. Live! Jesus says over us. And in your brokenness and in your despair, I don't know where you're at this morning, God pronounces over you, I want you to live. It's a beautiful picture. And then we get this kind of weird thing where Jesus, God passes by and finds this broken baby and live, you know, just like all that stuff. I won't do it again. Live! And, and, then, and, then he, and then the image we get is like, God puts a cloak over the baby. Now that's warm and snuggly, isn't it? In the midst of a chapter that's like not all warm and snuggly. In fact, some of you are like, some of you are like, that's what I need, man. I need Jesus to put a cloak over me because I'm snuggling with Jesus. And, and, and some of you are like, we could start a whole campaign out of that. You know, like right next, to, right next to the bumper sticker that says, if God is your co-pilot, switch seats. You could have a sticker that says, I'm snuggling with Jesus. And people would be like, man, what does that mean? You'd be like, man, Ezekiel 16. Jesus put a cloak over me. I'm snuggling with Jesus. And single ladies be like, I don't need a boyfriend. I got Jesus, you know. And it'd be like, all good. And like, it's just an encouragement for you today and, and all this stuff. And, 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 and so you're like, you, this is like a whole campaign started right here at Emmaus Road. Snuggling with Jesus, you know. God put a cloak over me. Has he put a cloak over you? And we could like write a rap song about it and like all kinds of cool stuff. I mean, it'd be amazing. But um, the, the meaning is a little bit more profound than that. Okay. 
It's, it's like a warm, fuzzy, snuggling with Jesus. It's all good. But here, here's, check this out. We, we actually um, learn about the, the whole cloak thing in Ruth. Okay? So let me give you uh, a little, let me give you like the Reader's Digest version of Ruth. That's the short version because I know that none of you read Reader's Digest anymore. So it's like the short version, right? You guys, I got to know my audience. That did not connect. How many of you have ever heard of Reader's Digest? Okay, you've all heard of it. You've just never read it. Okay. So it's abbreviated stories in Reader's Digest. So I'm going to give you the abbreviated story of Ruth. Ruth's husband dies. She needs a kinsman redeemer. Now, if that doesn't bless you and you need to know what it means, uh, needs a kinsman redeemer is that a family member, the, in, the, in the event of a woman being widowed, the nearest Ken, the nearest family member uh, that was not married, would marry that woman uh, as a way of rescuing or redeeming her. Because a single woman in this culture, uh, a a widow in this culture, would have no means of income, would have no means of of housing. I mean, would be very desolate and completely dependent upon the needs of other people. And so the nearest kin would redeem the widow by marrying her. So Ruth's husband dies. She needs a kinsman redeemer. uh, Otherwise, she'll be left desolate and so she meets this dude named Boaz and some some of you are like I'm just waiting for my Boaz and uh and, and so she approaches Boaz and let me let me tell you single ladies I'm here to help you out today okay so first of all snuggling with Jesus good and then then Ruth approaches Boaz on the threshing floor and says put the corner of your cloak over me boom that's a pickup line there you got it Okay, just like go up to a good looking guy and just be like, spread the corner of your cloak over me. And then after he walks away, you could explain what it means. Okay, so I'm just trying to help you out. Just trying to, you know. Okay, so so that's what happens. Ruth says to Boaz, approaches Boaz and says, spread the corner of your garment over me. And and actually what the symbolism is here uh, is the symbolism is that of making a covenant with someone. The, 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 the act of spreading the corner of your cloak over one, someone is, is this symbolic way of saying you and I are now in covenant with one another. You and I are now joined. You are mine. And that's precisely what we get from the context because uh, I put the corner of my garment over you and cover your nakedness and then I gave you this solemn oath and I entered into covenant with you and then the Lord declares over this baby who is broken and desolate and left alone, the Lord declares over this baby, you are mine. So the first proclamation that God makes over the life of this baby is live. Life is available to you. I know you've been abandoned. I know you're broken. You're lost without your rescuer. But your rescuer says to you, live. And then the second thing that God proclaims over this baby is, you are mine. Let me tell you the good news today of who we are in Christ. That Christ has entered into covenant with each one of you. He has died on the cross as a way of sealing his heart to yours. He's made two proclamations over you. First of all, live in the midst of impossible situations. In the midst of hopelessness and brokenness and despair. God proclaims over you abundant life is available now live where there once was death and then he says you are mine you are mine that's the good news of the gospel this this is actually that right 
And it gives us a beautiful picture of who we are in Christ. And then it goes on to say this. That after God makes these two proclamations over this, this baby, God cleans the woman. He clothes her in the finest fabrics. He gives her a diet of the best and most expensive foods. And then she became beautiful. Now, this wouldn't be all that extraordinary except when we realize and when we remember where the baby came from. Abandoned, broken, cord not cut, not covered in salt, not wrapped in clothes, naked and kicking in its own blood. And now, because of God's rescue, this woman is beautiful. And the scripture says that her beauty is perfect. Let me give you the good news today. That you were broken and lost without God. But now, if you accept Christ, you are clothed in the most costly fabric of all. And that is you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Do you know that? And what I love about this is that the baby, we have no indication that the baby asked for this gift. This is an unsolicited gift from the rescuer who gives this beauty, gives this baby a perfect beauty. And some of you just need to hear today that in your brokenness, in your disappointment, in the gap that we talked about last week, between the person that God wants you to be and the person that you are in reality, that gap that exists, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that is the most costly fabric of all. This beginning part of this difficult chapter is a metaphor for who we are in Christ clothed in his righteousness, given a beauty that is not our own, but comes to us as a gift, and this beauty is perfect. Isn't that good news? Then you have verse 15. And that's when the trouble starts. Then you have verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty, and you used your fame... To become a prostitute. This phrase, but you trusted in your beauty. See, we have to realize that this beauty is a gift. And what I want to say to you today is that that every good thing in your life is a gift from the God who loves you. Every good thing that you have is God gifting you by his grace and his mercy. He is a creator of all. Do you think that you earned that? Sure, you you played a part in it, but you didn't earn it. God gave it to you to steward well for his glory. God has given you the measure of success that you've had. You're the big man at your work. God has entrusted you with that position. You have wealth, which by the way, if you drove a car to church this morning, you're incredibly wealthy by world standards. You have wealth. God has given that to you to steward well for his glory. It's a gift. Everything that we have is a gift from the giver. 
It, 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 is, it has been bestowed upon us, many times unsolicited. We lived blessed lives. Everything we have is a gift from the one who loves to give. You know, we encourage you, and the Bible calls us to give. To give, it means to, to, to help issues of injustice, to give, to empower the local church through tithe and all of these things. And the church has gotten a bad reputation because, because it's like, well, the church only wants my money. And you might be here today and you might think that. And you might say, here he is. The pastor just slip it in whenever you can. Talk about money. Talk about giving. We don't ask you to give so that the church can have money. We ask you to give because when you give, something profound happens inside of you and you become more like the creator who created you, who at his very core is a giver. So we're not, we don't ask you to give, and the Bible doesn't call you to give, and God doesn't call you to give, because God needs the money. Guess what? God doesn't need the money. Right? God calls us to give, because he's a giver. And when we release some of these things that we own and that we possess, which we don't actually own or possess because they're his, then we become more like him that his character gets shaped and formed more and more into us when we give. And so everything that we have is a gift from God. I want you to realize that today. And I want you to go right down the line and, and, and start counting all the rich blessings in your life. And I want you to do something this week. I want you to not only just count the rich blessings of your life, but then give God credit for those blessings. and Say, God, thank you for the ways that you have richly blessed me. Because everything we have is a gift from the giver. But how easy is it to move our trust from the giver to the gift? You see, this baby was a baby born abandoned, kicking in her own blood. Along comes God, the rescuer, and bestows upon her this incredible, perfect beauty. And once she has that beauty and possesses that beauty, the scripture says that she forgets the days of her youth when she was kicking alone in her own blood, and she places all of her trust in her beauty. I wonder how easy it is for us to move our trust from the giver to the gift. You've been successful. And let me tell you what it looks like if you might be trusting in your success and the gift of your success rather than in the giver of your success. Sometimes we might say in our mind, you probably won't say this explicitly, but this, this may be a mindset by which you operate. And that is, if I'm successful, then I'm certainly wise. Therefore, I can depend and on my own wisdom alone. If I'm successful, I have a certain level of wisdom. So when I come across something, I've got the wisdom to handle it on my own. God, I got this. I don't need your wisdom. I don't need your direction because after all, I'm successful. And if I'm successful, then I must be wise. And so we get into this back and forth with God where we say, God, I got this. I got this. Don't worry about it. Nope. Help somebody else. Because I got this on my own. I'm successful, I certainly must be wise so I can rest on my wisdom alone. If I'm successful, then I'm certainly strong because I have to be strong to make it to the top so I can rest in my own strength. So we come across something, listen to me. You're, if you think that pastors preach because they got everything figured out, 
you're wrong. I preach because I got a lot of things to figure out. <laughs> and I'm, I just preach out of the overflow of what God is showing me. Man, I'm so susceptible to this one. Man, God, if, I'm, if I've, I've reached a certain level of success or, 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 or whatever, and so I, I must have a certain level of strength, which means I can handle this in my own strength. And when we do that, we're trusting the gift, not the giver. And I would just encourage some of you today to look really hard at your life and begin to decide and begin to discern what are the areas in which I have been given this incredible gift from God and yet I trust the gift rather than the source of the gift. Some of you might depend on on your success for approval. And so I'm only as good as I am successful. And in that case, I've placed my self-worth and confidence in the hands of success, however fleeting that might be. And what we need, and that's trusting the success to give me my self-worth rather than seeing that God has loved me enough to send his own son that he might die on the cross, that I might have life. You see, some of you are here today and you're like, I, I can't get a real job or, or I got fired from my job or I got laid off from my job and, and that's robbing me of a certain level of success in the business sector and so I must not be worth it. I must not be good enough. And you're attaching your success or lack of success to your self-worth. Your self-worth is dependent upon the level of success that you get in the marketplace. And let me tell you today that you're placing your trust in the gift, not the giver. Well, you might say, well, if I'm not successful, then God hasn't given me a gift. Listen, your role is obedience, not success. Your role is obedience, not success. Like, like what if we just had a posture of our heart where, where, where we said, God, I want whatever you want. I'm going to be obedient wherever you want me to go. I'm gonna, I, I'm, I, my heart is fully given to you in obedience. And then we just leave the success or the lack of success in the hands of God. That sounds a lot like trusting the giver and not trusting the gift. You've been given wealth, and you're wealthy by the world's standards, incredibly wealthy. And again, we might, we might not say this explicitly, but we might operate in this way, where we might say, there is no problem that money can't fix. Right, you got this problem, and you're like, all right, what needs to be done? Let's fix it. How much is it going to cost me? What problem do we have? So you might operate out of a mindset that there's no problem that given enough money can't be made right. You might operate out of a, out of a mindset that says no fee, there's no feeling that money can't buy. And some of you are like, that's not me. But anytime you feel lonely... You go to the mall. Because you want to feel worthy, you want to feel loved, you want to chase away the loneliness. And you're operating out of a mindset that based on my wealth, there's no feeling money can't buy. So if I'm feeling lonely and I don't feel the way I want to feel, surely I can go buy something or get something that will make me feel that way. 
No, it was all good until I crawled up in your living room and took a, chair, took a seat in your recliner, right? Everything's fine. Just don't get that close. That was a joke. You got to sneak them in. Some of you believe that there's no longing that money can't satisfy. So I want to ask the question again. Ever bought something to make yourself feel better? Ever purchased your way out of a problem? Ever tried to chase away loneliness by being, buying the lightest, latest fashion or the latest gadget? These are all examples of placing your trust in the gift, not the giver. The other thing I want to say about this is, is that God's grace was lavished on this baby. God's undeserving unmerited grace and mercy is absolutely lavished on this baby who was in need of rescue. And the same is true for you and I. Where would we be without God's grace? Where would we be without God's mercy? Where would we be without Christ between us and the siege and the punishment that we're so deserving of? Where would we be And this baby receives the abundance of God's grace and then abuses that grace and began to see the gifts as a prize that she won to be plundered. Let me say that again. She began to see God's grace as a prize that she had won to be plundered. Let me tell you, it is so common in our culture To abuse God's grace with license. There's two abuses of God's grace. One is legalism, where we try to control God's grace with rules and regulations that that kind of weigh down on us. And and many of you have have grown up in a legalistic church or culture or church culture, and, and you've decided that you don't want anything to do with that. And so you've gone from one abuse of grace legalism to the other abuse of grace which is license that based on the abundance of God's grace I can do whatever I want I can live like hell and depend on God's grace and his love and so we've we've got and this is precisely what the woman does she grows up experiencing the wonderful grace and mercy of God takes her her brokenness becomes perfectly beautiful and then sees this beauty as as something to to be plundered and wasted away And and what the scripture says is that by doing this, she has actually degraded the beauty. She has degraded the gift that God has given her through this abuse of seeing God's grace as a license. This is what happens when people live like hell, depending on God's grace to cover them when they sin. This is what the unfaithful woman does. She takes the gift that had been given to her and then uses them for sinful purposes. And God, or Paul, in his letter to the Romans, addresses this very issue. Because Paul, in Romans chapter 5, is talking about how wonderful God's grace is that where sin abounds, where there's sin and brokenness, God's grace abounds all the more. Where, where, where we once were babies kicking in our own blood, God has come in with his grace and rescued us and clothed us in the righteousness of Christ. Amen, Paul says. And then he begins the next chapter by saying this, so shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? That seems logical, right? If, if where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more that I need to sin in order to receive more grace. That sounds very logical. But Paul says, by no means should we do this. We can't abuse God's grace as a license to do what we want. 
And in fact, let me say this. A lot of people think that God's grace is, is, is God turning a blind eye to your sin. That the righteousness of God that we're clothed in is just that, this, this idea that, that regardless of how sinful we are and how we act, God is just sort of saying, can't see, can't see. That's God's grace. God turning a blind eye and ignoring the sin. But that simply isn't scriptural. The reality is that God's grace in our lives is a purifying power through the Spirit of God. And so God's grace doesn't just cover our sins. God's grace purifies our sins. Isn't that good news? Come on, I can tell this is a little theologically heavy for some of you. But stick with me, okay? Stick with me. God's grace is a purifying act in our life. Ezekiel 36, from this very same book, we see this. Ezekiel 36, 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all of your idols. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. Do you know that if you receive Christ and the righteousness of Christ that is made freely yours through the gift of God, he puts his spirit in you? Think about that. The spirit. Spirit of God, the power that raised Christ from the dead lives within each and every one of you. I will put, a, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you, and I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. God's desire is to purify your heart, not just ignore your sin. Did you hear that? God's heart and God's desire is to purify your heart. Not just ignore your sin. And sometimes we shortchange grace because we say grace is God just ignoring sin. But grace is God purifying our hearts. And let me tell you, some of you live in, in this world where you live in habitual sin and then you live by always asking God, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. Forgive me. And forgiveness is absolutely necessary, and we need to pray for that. Don't misunderstand me today. But some of you need to move beyond the prayer of forgiveness and begin praying for God to purify your heart. Begin asking God to purify you with his spirit so that you might overcome the sin that you struggle with. That's God's heart and intention. Because when we abuse God's grace as a license, we have forgotten what it was like when we were in need of rescue. I wonder how many of you today that are following Christ, and you're here this morning, you've started trusting in God's gifts rather than in, God's, rather than in the giver, and you have forgotten what your life was like before Christ. How many of you have been following Jesus for so long that you forgot what it was like to be without him? And we've kind of switched our trust, and all of a sudden we're trusting in all the gifts that God has given to us rather than in the giver. And this metaphor tells us that this woman forgot what it was like when she was a baby and so desperately in need of rescue. We cannot forget what God has done for us. And that's why I don't like to live in this area of recognizing our brokenness before God. But we need to remember it. It's a terrible place to live of, oh, I'm so ashamed and I'm so broken and I'm so worthless without Christ. That's a terrible place to live your Christian life. But it's also a terrible thing to forget. The, 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 the beauty or, or the proper way is to live with a balance, an awareness of my need for God, and yet a confidence in who I am in Christ. 
And some of us need to capture that balance, an awareness of who I am without God and my need for God, and then, then recognizing and having great confidence in who I am in Christ, and I've been clothed in his righteousness. That's where we need to live. Because when we abuse God's grace, it degrades the gift. Verse 25, when you did all of this, you degraded the gift that God had given you, and you degraded your beauty. In other words, this woman took the beauty of God's grace and made it ugly. That was point number one. I'm going to finish up real quick here. Don't worry, I only have five more points. Just kidding. There's another truth that comes out of this that I think is so important. Sin never satisfies. Sin never satisfies. The unfaithful woman abused God's grace in her life, leaving divine love for sinful pleasure. And then she discovered this important truth, that sin absolutely never satisfies. Verse 28, you engaged in prostitution with the Assyrians too because you were insatiable. You were insatiable. And even after that, still you were not satisfied. How many of you have been looking to a sinful action for so long and yet you have found that you are still not satisfied? Some of you have held on to bitterness and revenge against the person that hurt you. It's been three years and you still are not satisfied. You filled your heart with bitterness and revenge against the person that hurt you, hoping that one day the revenge and the bitterness would leave you satisfied. And then you would say, oh, now, because I'm so bitter against them, because my heart is so revengeful, I'm actually hurting them in the same way that they hurt me. But, but the scripture wants to tell you, and you realize from your own personal experience, that sin does not satisfy. The revenge and the hate is still not enough to satisfy your heart and bring you to peace. Some of you have been so obsessed with your body image that you will do terrible things to your body and you will diet in terrible and unhealthy ways to get thin enough or the right shape or whatever. And after all that pain and after all that effort, you're still not satisfied. You look in the mirror and you're still not satisfied. Some of you have turned to the object of your addiction, seeking comfort, seeking approval. Whatever it is that you're seeking by going to that thing, and it leaves you feeling empty, it leaves you feeling guilty, and you're still not satisfied. Sin will never satisfy. Then later on it says, Then you increased your promiscuity to include the Babylonia, the land of the merchants, but even with this, you were not satisfied. The woman turns to Assyria, still not satisfied. She turns to Babylonia, still not satisfied. The, 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 the trap is this. The trap of sin is that when it leaves you dissatisfied, it actually draws us in deeper. Did you hear that? The trap of sin is this. That when it, when we, it leaves us dissatisfied, it doesn't say... It doesn't let us go and say, there, I couldn't satisfy you. But sin, in, in, in the midst of our dissatisfaction, actually draws us in deeper. First the Assyrians, then the Babylonia. And you still, even with this, you were not satisfied. And sin tells us a lie that if we just had a bit more, our appetite would be filled. But let me tell you today, there is no end to that hole. There is no end to that hole. We need a rescuer. We need someone to pull us out of our brokenness. And let me end with this. There is this underpinning of truth in this passage. 
And that is this. When we are unfaithful, God is faithful. When we are unfaithful, God is faithful. Look at how this story ends. We didn't read this, but look how this story ends in verses 59 and 60. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as as you deserve. Sin has a consequence, even in the midst of God's grace. I will deal with you as you deserve, because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Remember the cloak? You broke this covenant. Yet, I will remember the covenant that I made with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. And I believe this everlasting covenant points us to Christ. Who has made a a covenant with each one of you through his death. He has purchased you by his blood. And that all we have to do is receive the covenant. The everlasting covenant that Christ has made on our behalf. Even when we are unfaithful, God is faithful. God has sealed himself to you in Christ. He has declared over your life, live. He has declared over your life, you are mine. All we must do is receive him. And so some of you today need to receive Christ for the very first time. But some of you today are in a place where you need to give your whole self to God. You're holding out on God a little bit. And you're like, God, you got my weekends, and you've got this area of my life, and you've got this set of friends, but, but over here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust in the, in the gifts and not the giver, and I'm going I'm to segue out my life. I'm going to create all these different segments of my life, and God, you can have this and this and this, but not this. And, and, and man, when we realize the full capacity of the covenant that God has made for us in Christ, when we realize the cost that, that, that Jesus has gone through to enter into that covenant with us, to seal ourselves to him to declare over you you are mine when we realize that cost it, it, it the the only proper response is all of us and yes some of you are keeping god at arm's length and you're not wanting to give him give him give him all of yourself and and you're and you're not wanting to go overboard you want to be religious but not fanatical you, you want to be a christian but not weird and, and, you, and so you're, you're trying to balance all of these things and trying to give god only part of your heart and what god is calling you today is an all-in relationship god says I gave all of myself to you in Christ. I made all, I shed all of this blood for you to enter into covenant with you. And so now in response, we give all of ourselves to him. So I don't know where you're at today, but I believe some of the next steps for you guys are this, that some of you need to pray for God to cleanse your heart. You've been praying in this circle of forgiveness for too long. That's important. Don't neglect that. Don't let go of that, but add on to that. God, please forgive me, but God, would you also cleanse my heart? Some of you need to shift your trust from the gift to the giver. That when we were talking about that, that just identified, you identified with that. And you said, that message is for me. He's talking to me. I've shifted my trust. And so some of you today need to shift your trust from the gift to the giver. And some of you need to give your heart fully to God. All in. God, you have all of me. And, and I don't know what that looks like for you. You need to pray and communicate with God. That's part of it. You can't just decide in your mind. I mean, you've got to sort of make this, this declaration before God, but, but God, you have all of me. When I'm, when I'm at that place and when I'm with those people and when I'm at work and all of these things, God, you have all of me today because you gave all of yourself in covenant to me. I don't know where you're at today, but those are some next steps to consider. Thanks for listening to the Emmaus Road Podcast. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. 
If you'd like to support the ministry of Emmaus Road, you can do so online. Just visit theroadfc.org and click online giving. 